Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Russia, big in the headlines today, my friends. Buck Sexton here with you all now. A sit-down between... Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, and, oh, there we go, oh, yes, and, and uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, don't you just, love, The Hunt for Red October is a great movie, so they sat down, and they had a discussion, and the discussion, and the discussion did not go as we've been led to believe up until now it would, because they're supposed to be such good buddies, right? They're supposed to be friends. Uh, here is what uh, Trump had to say earlier today on Putin. Putin is backing a person that's truly an evil person. And I think it's very bad for Russia. I think it's very bad for mankind. It's very bad for this world. But when you drop gas or bombs or barrel bombs, they have these massive barrels with dynamite, and they drop them right in the middle of a group of people. And in all fairness, you see the same kids, no arms, no legs, no face. This is an animal. Strong words from the commander-in-chief. This is, of course, the context for the meeting between Secretary of State Tillerson and his counterpart, Sergey Lavrov. And when Lavrov came out, of course, through a translator, in case you were wondering how that uh, meeting went, well, here you go. We frankly discussed the current state of U.S.-Russia relations. I expressed the view that the current state of U.S.-Russia relations is at a low point. We further discussed approaches to improving our channels of communication. We had a lengthy exchange of views regarding the situation in Syria and shared perspectives on possible ways forward. We both believe in a unified and stable Syria, and we agree we want to deny a safe haven for terrorists who want to attack both of our countries. We agree that North Korea has to be denuclearized. We agree there needs to be more senior-level communication between our two countries, both at a diplomatic and military level. Relations are at a low point, though. I, I thought this was all we, we got to this point because of the fondness that Trump and everyone who worked for him had for Russia. And that's why we have all these investigations. And does the the conspiracy seem even crazier to some of you now? By the way, there are those out there who are doubling down on conspiracy by saying this was all an addendum to the initial conspiracy to hack the election because there's never enough crazy for some folks out there. This is all a show. Maybe we even coordinated this whole thing with the Russians beforehand and they're not really mad at us and this is just all theater. People are saying this. I mean, when I mean people, I don't just, I'm not talking about random uh, 
social media accounts. These are members of the Democratic Party. These are people that have power, have influence. The media certainly still believes that something funky is going on here because, well, Russia is supposed to be calling the shots, and right now they're not calling the shots. Rather than just spend time with you today on the partisan squabble aspect of this, because I'm sure without I haven't listened to any other shows today because I'm busy researching and reading and pulling together my own show. But I'm sure whether on TV or radio or however else you consume the the day's events, you've probably already had plenty of people bombarding you with, oh, well, well, of course, the latest on the Russia Trump collusion investigation. We'll get into some of that. But the, the analysis around Russia these days is, for most of the people that I see out there, just very superficial. Uh, as though if, if we have Reagan-esque shows of strength by our military, well, that, that will stop the Russians. Well, no, that would have mattered much more during the Soviet era when Reagan was president and led to the defeat of the Soviet Union, uh, Reagan's presidency. Uh, but things have changed rather dramatically. And, and a lot of those who right now are talking to you about uh, Russia, I don't know how else to put this, uh, just don't know what the heck they're talking about. They have no idea. There are some advantages to having been a student of international relations for many years and also working for the CIA and having a background in geopolitics uh, beyond just the, the headlines of the various newspapers. And I thought that it would be a worthwhile hangout session for us today to get into some of that Uh, because when you're discussing the pushback against russia uh, yeah we can talk about submarines and nukes and and show of force but that's really old cold war stuff still very relevant in the sense that it has to be there today to prevent catastrophic conflict and i know that there are strategic reasons for those arsenals and those the nuclear triad, but if we're looking to blunt Russian aggression, nukes, submarines, the very vast and expensive and advanced military apparatus we have uh, for conventional conflict is definitely not going to do it. Uh, but of course, some of the people running around today, they, they go to the playbook, right? Show strength, show strength. Okay, let's get into what it really means that Russia is trying to undermine our allies. How does Russia get under the skin of NATO? How does Russia begin to pull it apart? What will that look like? Because I can tell you it's not going to be divisions of Russian tanks uh, swarming across the border into Poland and Germany. That's not what's going to happen. But we've already seen some of the Russian playbook, and we can talk about, first of all, where it comes from, where Russian geopolitics are pushing their strategy, and then we have an understanding of what we're supposed to do. But just, yeah, Trump fired missiles. Missiles scare the bad guys. That's true to an extent. But we're not about to start hitting Russian military bases with missiles as a show of force. That's not going to happen. That would be crazy. That would be a very, very bad idea. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the Russians don't have aggressive intent. So I, I find it frustrating. You have a lot of a lot of opinion makers and opinionators running around who just they just don't know anything about geopolitics or Russia or international relations or strategy or anything else. Uh, but it's easy to pound the table and say, you know, show strength. And yeah, Reagan, Reagan was amazing. But we are now in Cold War uh, 2.0, which has been written about by many uh, Russia analysts up to this point. Uh, there's even a book that I could recommend to you, the new the new Cold War, uh, which is very good. 
um, but we aren't fighting the Soviet, uh, the Soviet dragon anymore. We are fighting something much smaller but still lethal. I think the uh, analogy that's used sometimes is now we're facing various poison snakes. So we're having this diplomatic exchange with Russia today, and there's a lot of focus on Syria, but Syria is just one piece of a much larger puzzle. Uh, Syria is one of the flashpoints that we have, but there are many others, and there are others that could become bigger problems for us much more quickly. Uh, You can look at Moldova and the Baltic states, which are, of course, NATO allies, so that is a major calculation right there. Recent Russian meddling in Montenegro, a tiny, uh, tiny country inside what is the former Yugoslavia, the Crimean Peninsula, eastern Ukraine, and yes, Syria, and even Afghanistan, where, of course, the Soviets, now the Russians, have longstanding ties, know the terrain well, and have uh, a lot of influence that they can exert there. We don't often hear about it, but, you know, it's... The stands are former Soviet, so keep that in mind as well. Not in Afghanistan, they tried to make part of the Soviet Union, and we know where that led. But these are the different flashpoints that we can look at. And to understand why they're problematic, you first have to go back to what is Russia, what is Russia trying to accomplish? What does it really think? You'll hear people that will talk about, uh, and this was from today, for example, the uh, New York Times, Trump's shift on Russia brings geopolitical whiplash because they're saying oh well this is this is their own writing a week ago president trump was accused of being a tool for the russians an unwitting agent of influence so full of admiration that he defended president vladimir putin against critics who called him a killer now mr trump is in a diplomatic clash with mr putin's russia his administration accusing moscow of trying to cover up a syrian chemical weapons attack on civilians and his Secretary of State delivering us or them ultimatums. That from the New York Times today. Big headline. So why? I'll put aside for a second the maybe all of this is just a ruse, people. A ruse with Russia. Let's, we, we can deal with that later because that's, that's nonsense, but there are those who will hold to that. Uh, we are in the midst of confronting Russian geopolitical strategy, which is different than what existed during the, the Cold War, if you want to call it Cold War 1.0, with the Soviet Union. You know, the Russians don't care about fomenting uh, revolution in, as they did when they were the Soviet Union. They, they don't care in about what's going on in Angola, or they don't care what's going on in Cuba, or they don't care what's... Sure, they have uh, longstanding connectivity to some of those places because of the connections established during the Soviet era, but right now the Russians have a few major points of focus. Uh, The current Cold War, if you want to call it that, which is a pretty imprecise way to describe it, but there's no really much better way, is trying to break up NATO, stoke European nationalism. The Russians want to do those things. They want to create buffer states and puppet states on what they call the near abroad, which is really the places just outside of current Russian Federation borders that used to be part of the Soviet Union or perhaps places that are adjoining those places. Um, so they want to create buffer states and puppet states. Uh, they want to grow rich. They want to become more powerful. 
but the focus is civilizational instead of Marxist, meaning that it's on Russian Orthodox civilization. This is why, whether you believe the polls about Putin's support or not, uh, because the polls show him with incredibly high support, but it is a a strongman situation. I'm not sure how many people feel that they can speak honestly, even to a pollster, about how they feel about Putin. But with the fall of the Soviet Union um, and then the economic collapse afterwards, remember the devaluing of the ruble, and then there was this rush of uh, really banditry. And we'll get into some of that as well and how the KGB, as it dissipated, played a major role in the formation of the new Russian state, the Russian state that we are dealing with right now, which you can argue is really a, a an intelligence agency with a country attached to it because of how prominent, of course, you've got Putin, who's well known as a former KGB lieutenant colonel, uh, but there are many others, and I'll get into some of those details with you as well. But the Russians are trying to assert a Russian Orthodox civilizational identity. I mentioned to you the other day when we were talking about uh, Rome and uh, Byzantine, the Byzantine Empire, the Islamic conquest, and how the Byzantines thought of themselves with the capital of Constantinople. Uh, Byzantium was originally an ancient Greek settlement, and so you, the Byzantine Empire, Byzantium is near, ancient Byzantium is near uh, Constantinople. But the movement of Rome in ancient Rome to then the Eastern Rome in Constantinople, and then according to the Russian conception of history and civilization, it then was moved to Moscow and to Russia. And so they're the inheritors of ancient Roman civilization. That's why the the Roman, I'm sorry, the Russian Orthodox Church plays such a large role in Russian identity. And the new Russian state from the smoldering ruins of the Soviet Union has embraced that identity, that state that is driven largely by former military and intelligence hands who are the ones that are directing much of this. And of course, Putin runs the country as a former intelligence officer. But Russian Orthodox Third Rome civilizational identity is the basis for a lot of the ideology that we need to understand to see why they're pushing uh, up against NATO, why they're pushing into these border areas, why they're doing what they've done in Georgia, in Ukraine, whether eastern Ukraine or the Crimean Peninsula, and what the playbook is. So we need to understand what they're trying to achieve. You know, you got a lot of bluster out there. People, oh, no, they've got a lot of nukes. We've got a lot of nukes. Yeah, that hasn't changed at all. The Russians aren't looking to get into a conventional war, but they are looking to break apart NATO. They are looking to create pliable states on their borders to grow wealthier and more powerful and in time to exert influence as a great power again. So I, I want to get into more of these details because I could pound the table and talk about how the media is so wrong about Trump and look what they've done and he's giving Russia a hard time. I, I can do that in two minutes and we'll do some of that. But I want to give you a deeper dive into Russian expansionism, irredentism, the role of the former intelligence officers of the KGB in the new Russian state, most notably Putin, and what this means if we're going to oppose them, what their tactics are. I think this stuff is all fascinating. So if you're with me, stay with me, and we'll get into it more in a few minutes. Be right back. It would be wonderful, as we were discussing just a little while ago, if NATO and our country could get along with Russia. Right now, we're not getting along with Russia at all. 
we may be at an all-time low in terms of uh, relationship with Russia. This is built for a long period of time. Uh, but we're going to see what happens. All-time low, Trump is saying. And I know there are those who are going to claim that, of course, this is part of a Trump propaganda offensive. Think, think of how brilliant the Russians would have had to be and Trump and how Machiavellian and strategic. And forget about 4D chess. This is 12D chess. This is some other dimension, right, of knowing how to manage and uh, how to control perception of, of all these different events. It's just crazy. And the problem is, you know, once you practice to deceive, what a tangled web you weave, you know? I know I did that backwards, so that's what happens when you do Shakespeare off the cuff. Uh, what is it? What a, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Um, and once you believe in conspiracies, it's very hard to back out. Be like, well, I was, I was way off. Um, and so that's what you see happening with a lot of people in the media now, because they have really wagered their credibility on a massive Russia-Trump conspiracy to uh, throw the U.S. election. Okay, but let's just put all that aside again for a second and get back into what's really happening. Why do we have these problems with Russia? They're real. Why do we have these problems with Russia? I mentioned to you a book beforehand, The New Cold War by Edward Lucas. Um, I have it at home, uh, and sometimes I like to go and flip through and see my notations in books that I've read in the past. That's one of the reasons I like hard copies. Don't tell the authors, but I do like to take actual notes and write things in books. Um, but here's what he writes about what we can expect from Russia. And this was this book was published first uh, in 2007, I think. But the analysis is very astute. And in fact, it's worth going back to read because you see how much of what the author thought would be Putin's playbook has been. But this is what he writes. Russia's neighbors will be bullied, undermined, infiltrated, disarmed by cyber attack and internal subversion, racked by energy dependence and generally entangled in a web of Russian pulled strings. In the end, like Finland in the Soviet era, they will be reduced to a condition that remains nominally independent but effectively subservient. After its recent ordeal, uh, Georgia will be lucky if half the country isn't permanently occupied by Russian forces. Similarly, on the domestic front, Lucas is not predicting a renaissance either of Stalinist totalitarianism or of a centralized command economy. Even if Russia's infant democracy has already been muzzled, Russia needs to stay open to the world in order to wield its chosen instruments of pipeline politics and authoritarian capitalism. That's actually from the forward to the latest edition. Uh, but there you have it. Bullying, undermining, infiltrating, disarming via cyber attack. Why does Russia do those things? Well, Russia does them because it is trying to regain power that was lost after the fall. That doesn't mean trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. That's done, right? That party's over. Um, <laughs> the Communist Party is not a party anymore, my friends. Well, not in Russia. It is elsewhere. But you know what I mean. I was trying to be funny about party. Um they have reasons, though, for why they push in the areas that they do. And we've seen the playbook. How are they? Go if, if they're going to subvert and undermine and pick off countries on their periphery, as well as in some cases, what we see with Syria, uh, long distance strategic relationships, uh, what can we expect from them and what would be needed to stop them? Uh, a lot of bluster about how, you know, yeah, we. We'll show them. We'll, we'll be strong like Reagan was. Okay. That's step one. Step two is to get them to not actually foment a little rebellion inside a NATO country in the Baltics. We'll talk about that.
Secretary General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. It's not no longer obsolete, pardon the double negative, because of terrorism or the fight against terrorism. In fact, the U.S. uh, allied mission in Afghanistan is under the NATO aegis. International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan is a NATO mission. Um, And so we're fighting there against the Taliban, which played host to al-Qaeda, as well as now Islamic State uh, an Islamic State uh, outpost in Afghanistan, and of course other jihadist elements, uh, you know, Haqqani Network and any number of bad guys, you could fill in the blanks there. But so NATO has been used in that role, but that's not why NATO exists, as you know, and it's not the primary role going forward. NATO does not want to be in the business of toppling authoritarian regimes in the Middle East and trying to rebuild Countries. It also doesn't want to be in the business of taking control of a jihadist uh, theocracy and then trying to rebuild it. So there's just a limited number of ways you can see NATO's utility uh, being, well, worth all of the trouble going forward, unless you add in the fact that it is meant as a uh, bulwark against Russian aggression. And if, as, if you look at the countries I mentioned before, uh, notably the Baltics, uh, but also uh, a part of Moldova, and uh, you look at the Caucasus region, uh, Georgia, the uh, provinces of uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, these are all places where the Russians have, well, either shown a willingness to be aggressive um, or have already, uh, or, or have stated they will be aggressive in the future. Uh, But let's talk about how they do this, because we hear so much about, oh, we need to be willing to stand up to Russia. Okay, Uh, the way the Russians tend to run their their games these days, remember what I read to you about cyber and subversion and undermining uh, Russian warfare by deceit and Russian warfare with concealment, Mazkarovka. Uh, This is taking the old KGB playbook and applying it instead of for the purposes of uh, pseudo-Marxist revolutions really controlled by the Kremlin in third-world countries, whether Latin America, Africa, or elsewhere, or uh, th- that's one means of how they do this, right? They, they like to find some hook into uh, one of these smaller countries, and then they come in with a new plan. Uh, so it used to be about the Marxist revolutionaries, and they would pretend that Kremlin was directing much of this. In fact, the Kremlin was much more involved. There is a second, the second part of the Matrokin Archive series. It's really two books. The first is just about the operations of the KGB. Second part is uh, the world was going our way, and it's about KGB operations in the developing world, in the third world, and the con- and, and the connections uh, to the Kremlin for a lot of these so-called liberation movements. Um, but that. Uh, tactically, it's ideologically different now, but tactically they will do things that come out of a, a similar a similar playbook, right? So what are the tactics? What are the things they do? They will hand a bunch of passports out uh, in a country uh, like, well, they did this in Crimea, of course, which was a Soviet possession. Uh, they've done this 
in Georgia, uh, they will talk about a Russian uh, a Russian minority that is under siege. And then they'll deploy people to, as and this is how it went in Georgia. They'll, they'll deploy military force and say they're trying to keep the peace. So the way they would do this in the Baltics is not bombing is not bombers and and tanks saying, ah, we, we, we've taken over your country. But they would start. And they, by the way, look at what they did in Ukraine. Right. They all of a sudden, th- these men who speak Russian and are heavily armed uh, are claiming that they have seized an area and they're separatists and uh, they're not tied to Russia, but everyone knows they're tied to Russia. And then they begin a little insurgency, which can then grow. And the Russians will come in and say, well, we need to help out here. We're worried about the Russian speakers in the area. There are Russian speakers, by the way, in Latvia. Uh, you look at all of the Balt- Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, in particular, Latvia, though, has a, has a Russian minority that is or could be fertile ground for exactly this, this warfare through covert means, through deception and lies and propaganda. As we know, propaganda is very important to the Russians, not just RT. That's pretty out there and in your face, but much more effective and subversive propaganda. So there are a number of ways in which the Russians have shown aggression in in recent years and will continue to do so. And it's not a question of whether we roll an aircraft carrier by, you know, obviously float, not roll, but we float an aircraft carrier by them somewhere and say, hey, you know, play nice. This is tricky stuff. They create even if it's implausible deniability, a veil of deniability that allows them greater freedom to operate, and it plays well with domestic uh, Russian public opinion. And as I said to you, this is all part of a reassertion of, well, if you want to take a class, a clash of civilizations thesis, or to borrow from uh, Huntington, uh, Clash of Civilizations, still very much worth reading. Um, the, the book, as well as the essay that originally appeared in Foreign Affairs uh, magazine, which was published by the Council on Foreign Relations, um, where I managed to intern for a little short period of time, and that makes me a part of the Illuminati, allegedly. That sounds great. I, if the Illumin- if the, Being a part of the Illuminati means I get a Maserati. Sign me up. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Huntington thesis here would be that the Clash of Civilizations is playing out as part of Russian, as Russian Orthodox civilizational identity is being reasserted. It had been uh, part of Soviet expansionism and had been subsumed into that. But now, now that the Soviet aspect of it is gone, the Marxist underpinnings, you're back to old Eastern strongman, authoritarian, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church working hand in hand with the state in many cases as a means of creating an identity as well as uh, state stability. And then, of course, you get into, well, then why does Russia why does Russia have to act in this predatory fashion as a state, as a nation state? Why do the Russians have all of these um, uh, areas that are flashpoints? And then you get into some pretty interesting, interesting uh, psychology. But first, so you have on the civilizational thesis or a clash of civilizations thesis, the reassertion of Russian Orthodox identity. Okay, so that's what is going on now, and this is powerful stuff. It's also, by the way, why people point to Russia and Russian actions in Europe, and they start to see 
some similarities with the reassertion of nationalism and nationalistic identity in European states. People like to feel as though they belong. They, even if their tribe is 100 or 200 million, million strong, they like to feel as though they are part of an identity group, a nation-state identity group, uh, or a nation identity group, I should say. And the Russians are finding comfort in that now. And the suffering that we put them through with sanctions, by the way, just brings them uh, closer together. And they've weathered those sanctions uh, pretty well, despite the fact that we've been able to get the, our European allies to go along with us. Uh, the, another part of this, though, and this is, uh, some people reject this. I, I find that geog uh, geographical determinism which maybe is too strong. It's kind of like calling somebody an isolationist because they don't want to intervene. It's not that it's geographically determined, but geography does play a very large role in geopolitics. Uh, you could take it back to Mackinder, um, who was a geopolitical strategist at the turn of the 20th century, and his thesis about the world island and the heartland and the geographical realities facing the Russian state. Essentially, Russia... Now, we're going to break this down to its simplest components here so I don't get ahead of myself or lose my train of thought. Russia is surrounded by either geographic boundaries or civilizational boundaries. And to the north, it's the polar Arctic, so there's nothing really there. You know, he's not worried that Santa's going to invade, at least not anytime soon, maybe with presents. Um, to the south, uh, you have uh, the deserts, and steppe of the Middle East, or the Caucasus region, the Caucasus Mountains. Um, and so the Muslim Middle East to the south is a civilizational uh, friction point. Obviously, to the east, you have uh, China and Japan and other Asian states, but mainly, for the, for the purposes of Russia, they have to worry about China, Japan, and Korea. And to the west, you have NATO, you have Europe. So these are its, uh, these are its boundaries, and they're not just they're not just things that you can ignore because uh, from the Russian perspective, they are surrounded by competitors that want to see them boxed in and degraded as a nation on all sides. And if you look at historically, Russia has been invaded many times, uh, been invaded by uh, the Europeans from the West. We're talking about Napoleon or obviously Hitler, Hitler, in a sense, uh, replaying Napoleon's uh, mistake of a disastrous invasion deep into Russia. Um, the steppe peoples under the descendants of Genghis Khan invading as well and various wars that have been fought with, uh, with competitors of the Far East. So, so Russia has a longstanding history of, and then battling it out with Turkey, by the way. We don't think of Russia and Turkey much as rivals, but historically, and whether this is playing out in the Crimea or elsewhere, Russia and Turkey were at each other's throats. Um, so the Russian psyche is very different when it comes to its view of its borders. Russia thinks of itself as surrounded by enemy states, or at least oppositional states, but they probably think enemy states. And they would like to create some buffer areas. Um, they want this also for the projection of their own power. Uh, but from insecurity... In the, in the Russian strategic perspective, insecurity of, of territorial integrity comes that constant expansionism and sense that they need to create more distance as a break, as a means of stopping 
any of these invading countries uh, from hitting them once again. Now, when we look at Russian activity vis-a-vis NATO, whether it's in Montenegro recently, where the Montenegrin government has said that uh, Russian intelligence officers have tried to foment a coup and to overthrow that country's uh, leadership, or to assassinate, actually, I believe it was the leadership, and overthrow it and make sure that Montenegro, tiny state in the former Yugoslavia, does not join NATO. Um, this this is a, a very sensitive point, um, but the, the Russians see themselves as justified in their authoritarianism at home. They're really, they, they have repression at home and expansionism abroad because the state apparatus thinks that there are all of these threats that come inside of Russia to the stability of Russia and in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, which, yes, Putin did say was a was the, the greatest catastrophe, there was a lot of instability. They're not making that up. Uh, that is a real thing that, that they had to contest with. And they did lose territory that they thought gave them a strategic depth. Geographical strategic depth is uh, a concern for many countries. Um, this is where a lot of border disputes, uh, they are they are overheated or they become real conflicts uh, that, that turn into shooting wars um, because there are such great concerns in the central government that if they have an enemy right on their border, well, how can you ever really feel secure? So uh, there's a geographical component to the Russian strategic mentality that we have to take into account here as well. And as I said, they view themselves as boxed in on all sides by opponents who have recently, in recent decades, uh, picked off territory that was, if not part of the Russian family, well, then close cousins. Uh, And we have a giant military alliance that still exists, that really does exist, to keep Russia in check. So their view of this is that they need to find ways to pick it off and to break it apart but the way they'll do that is not like I, it's like I said, it's not tanks and hundreds of thousands of troops and major deployments. It's by what we've already seen in recent years um, and some projection of force abroad in, in places like Syria. But on the for the near abroad, the Russian periphery around its borders, it'll be the projection of force via subversion and covert means and propaganda and mini insurgencies. Uh, and any number of tactics that prevent a major and unified military response. That's what they want. They're always trying to push the boundaries, literally and figuratively. Um, All right, I want to take your calls, 844-900-2825. We'll finish up on the Syria-Russia-Trump talk uh, coming up here in a few minutes, and then we'll move on to some other news of the day. we got a lot more show. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Uh, 844-900-2825. You want to call in on the lines? Love to hear from you. Watson in Florida, iHeart app. What's up, Watson? How are you doing, brother? I'm uh, good. Good to talk to you on your new show. It's been a while. Congratulations. Thank you. On the syndication. Uh, um, basically, I was just uh, wanting to talk about a couple of different things. And um, first off, I guess, uh, the Russian situation that we have i don't find as precarious as i think you do um and i wonder if we aren't basically exactly where we should be when it comes uh, or as best as we can with them um they were in check for a while and basically starting with georgia and then crimea and then syria they took advantage of a 
you know, basically, basically a crippled Bush administration through that uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then an Obama administration that would let them do whatever they wanted to. Do you actually think that Russia forms any type of formidable threat through anything more than an Iran? I mean, I worry more about Iran. Um, they're much better at the proxy war um, situation than, than no, Russia. No, Russia, and Russia's not going to come at us directly any time in the foreseeable future. It, it'll always be uh, Russian aggression and expansionism will come in the form of uh, small small actions in countries other than what we've seen in Syria, but that's because it gives them a, a strategic projection into the Middle East. It also cozies them up with Iran, which they they want to have a voice in, in that regime as much as they can. It gives them a warm water port in the Mediterranean at uh, uh, um, Tartus. And, and so they... You know, th- there are reasons why they're doing that, and it also sends a message, by the way, to any of their supposed uh, r- beleaguered Russian minorities in countries outside of the Russian Federation that, see, we back our we back our friends. We don't back away from them. We back them. Uh, I mean, I, I think I mentioned Moldova before. I mean, there's the Transnistria region in, inside Moldova, which is landlocked inside that country, and there's separatists who are saying, yeah, we're, we're Russian, and we want to be part of Russia. Well, they're in the middle of Moldova, but... Of course, Moscow's making noise about that. So, yeah, we're not going to go to war with Russia over any of these things, nor should we. Um, we shouldn't make these our fights, but we should understand how Russia is approaching this so that we can respond effectively in kind when we decide that it's in our national interest. Yeah, I agree. And technically, I don't think Russia wants anything more than they did 35 years ago, and that is a warm warm water port, period. Um that's the end of it. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, they could care less what happens in Iran. Um, they want the warm water port, but uh, yeah, I mean, they have one. They have one at uh, at, at uh, Tartus or Tartus uh, in in the Mediterranean. So that and that's why they, that's why Syria matters. To, well, it's one of the reasons why Syria matters to them so much. Is the security of that, yes. Um, but I, I just I don't see them putting up as much of a fight as as people would think when it comes down to the fact that they're going to meet an American government that might not, well, definitely won't bend over backwards accommodating them and getting out of their way. Um, That's the main thing that Trump administration, I think, offers, is that, you know, as retarded as they might be sometimes, they at least will not sit around and be pushed around. Uh, No, I, I think they're willing to, I think they're willing to meet the Russians on terms of strength. We'll be right back, team. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. Phones open 844-900-2825. I have Dan in North Carolina on WPTI. What's up, Dan? Not too much, Buck. How are you this evening? I'm good, sir. Thank you for your call. All right. I've listened and been listening to your input on Russia, and that's, that's so informative. So many people, I've been, you know, I'm 62 years old, and I haven't heard a lot about Russia through my life, but the information you have is invaluable to me. I, it makes a Thank lot you. of sense. But it brings up a question to me. Sure. Russia, only number nine in the world population-wise, and number one in the world landmass. Wouldn't it be to somebody's benefit to get along with these people? <laughs> I, I mean, it just... What? How, I don't know how much of it's uninhabitable or too harsh or whatever. I don't know, like Siberia and 
different things what the percentage of the land is, but there's a lot of people in this world, and there's a lot of land in Russia. <laughs> so I, well, you know, it's interesting because if you if you take the uh, Halford John Mackinder, and keep in mind his his geographical pivot of history uh, essay was I think 1904 it was published, and that's where he talked about the the Heartland thesis, and the the Heartland is Russia, by the way. Because it's the center and it's the center of land of the landmass that is the world island, which is uh, Europe, uh, Central Asia, and on all of Asia, the the primary landmass on planet Earth. And uh, part of the uh, the reality that he was dealing with then, which look, all all of these geopolitical uh, theses are going to have holes, and it's, it's not perfect, but it's just a it's a way to conceptualize an enormous set of issues. Uh, and, and the resources that Russia has, the, I mean, the actual physical resources that it has, as a, just as a function of its landmass, make it formidable. Uh, and then when you add into that a substantial, but as you point out, not necessarily substantial compared to the size of the landmass, but a substantial population. But it's, uh, it doesn't have borders that correspond with any real geographical reality. Uh, the borders are other civilizations, and that's why you've had a... A continuous string of clashes stretching back from, well, the beginning of when it was uh, Russia all the way. You can talk about uh, Kiev in Rus, and you could talk about uh, the early days of uh, Russia as, or rather, the Grand uh, uh, Duchy of Moscow. You look at the Russian history. And by the way, if you're looking for a few things on this to read, either from a historical or a current context— Uh, Massey's biography of Peter the Great is one of my favorite biographies I've ever read. It's fantastic, and it's a great uh, introduction. Look, I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a Russianist. I'm not somebody who studied Russia his whole life. I've done much more on the on the Middle East and Islam than on Russia. Uh, but if you're looking for something as an introduction that gives you a lot of the major dynamics that affect Russia to this day, it's caught between East and West. It it is. In many ways, European, and in fact, a large part of Peter the Great's legacy was trying to Europeanize it. One of the amazing things of that period of history as well is that Russia's mortal enemy was Sweden, believe it or not. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the Swedes were a military power, a serious one, one in the region. Yeah, so uh, Massey's Peter the Great is, is a fan, and it starts out, and, and uh, I'm sorry, Dan, I'm, I'm rambling here. Anything else you wanted to bring up or ask about? Other than a warm water port, what is it in Syria that Russia wants? I don't... I'm not connecting that too well. I don't understand that. Well, it gives them uh, it gives them a lot of uh, it, it gives them a lot of political clout. I think with the with the Iranians as well, and that's I think the Russians realize the Russians aren't like the Obama administration in that they don't believe that the Iranians aren't heading for uh, greater hegemony in the Middle East and a nuclear uh, and, and nuclear weapons. I, I think the Russians, I'm sure. At, at the top level are, are preparing for a future where Iran has nukes too, and they want to be um, in relatively good standing with and have good relations with the regime in Tehran. Uh, and all, uh, other than the port, this is a, a symbol of what Russia does for its allies and friends anywhere. Um, and when you're going to pursue a foreign policy, that r- remember, the Assad regime is actually an ethnic or religious, religious and ethnic, depending on how we frame it, a beleaguered minority. 
the the Alawites are a, a small percentage of the overall Syrian population, and the Alawites run that country. Uh, so, th- in a sense, the Russians are running to the aid of a beleaguered, a pro-Russian uh, religious and ethnic minority in Syria, uh, and that's or a religious minority in Syria, and and that's uh, the playbook for them. That's what they've done elsewhere, and they're going to continue to do. Um, and and I think that also it gives it gives Putin a means of displaying power uh, that is useful for politics at home because identity, and this is what I was getting at with, and I know we talk in these very grand uh, terms about civilizational identity and, and Russian Orthodox civilization as an entity, but that has resonance inside of Russia. You know, if you're if you're just some some guy who's living on the you know on the on the doorstep of Siberia, you know Russian identity is meaningful to you, and that Putin is exerting force around the world and also standing up to uh, an what is considered by the Russians an imperialist West and a, and a provocative U.S. NATO alliance that uh, that has that has benefits. So it, it, there's a lot of complex and intersecting factors here i mean like i said it's it's fun to pound the table and say stand up to russia like you know send send in the aircraft carriers or you know get the tanks ready on the border just in case sure we're doing that but there's a lot of other things that we need to be aware of as well because we'd like to have a more constructive relationship where possible with russia it's not possible in that many places i'm not delusional there are very few places where i think it's uh, it's likely where we can work closely together with them uh, because well, even against jihadists, people always bring this up, say, oh, well, the Russians have been fighting against terrorism. Yeah, the Russians have been fighting against jihadist terrorism uh, on their doorstep. I mean, inside of Russia, of course, as well, but also in places like the Caucasus, Chechnya, uh, where the Caucasus, you know, the Caucasus mountain regions in that area. You've got Chechnya, South Ossetia. I mean, the Ossetians, believe it or not, are, are people, no one even knows about this who talks about it. They're really a, a Persian ethnic group, or they're tied to Persian ethnic groups. They're close, more closely related to Persians than they are to Russians and Slavs. Uh, and in fact, I believe Stalin's fa- Stalin's mother was Georgian ethnically, but I think Stalin's father was uh, Ossetian, which is uh, essentially Persian, and they speak a dialect that has linguistic ties to Persia. Now you're, and I'm telling you stuff that you don't need. You know, who, who needs to know? I just think it's interesting. It is, and I see. I, I've never worried about 150 million people in Russia walking across America like I worried about a billion people from China. So the the population, to me, compared to the land mass and different things, is a correlation. It's well, you know, China is a very important. Uh, and Dan Shields, hi. Thank you for calling in on WPTI from North Carolina. China is an, an important. Uh, uh, way of looking at many of the dynamics at play in Russia, if you're going to take the position that geography that geography matters and that what who your neighbors are when you're discussing international affairs and uh, military realities are very important, look at what's going on with China right now in the South China Sea. And that's where you have uh, the greatest sense of, of the possibility of Chinese expansionism. China is not about to take over Russia. It's not about to take over uh, India. It's not about to try to grab huge portions of the Middle East and the steppe and the desert, although you do have with uh, the uh, the Uyghurs of Western China, that's which who are Muslim, that's where China, of course, begins to fade and the Chinese, land ma- or, uh, Chinese boundaries 
uh, end. Um, but the, the Chinese are also dealing with geographic realities, right? They're boxed in by these different civilizations, as I said. And then they also have the literal states. Um, what is it? L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. Uh, of Japan and Korea and the Philippines and Southeast Asia, uh, including you know, Malaysia, Thailand, etc. So that determines a lot of their strategy 5, 10, 20 years out and beyond. Um, the geographic realities matter a whole, a whole lot, as do the, ide- the identity politics of civilizations. You could call it that. That, that also uh, really, really matters a great deal. I haven't even gotten into Syria yet, by the way, and, and I want to do that, but I've been talking so much about um, uh, Russia here. Uh, I, I, again, I don't think a, a major conflict with Russia is going to happen. Um, I, I doubt it even is, is a reality in my lifetime. But are they going to kick up some little insurgencies in some places that we do care about? Will they try to off-balance us, keep us busy? Uh, remember, they're playing a very long game. And another point to keep in mind here is from the Russian perspective. Uh, and I'm not one of these people that says, from the Russian perspective, America is being so aggressive. I don't mean that. But from the Russian historical perspective, uh, l- look at where the Soviet Union was circa you know, 1975, 1980. And where it was in 1991. So while America right now feels, and we still do have that feeling of relative invincibility, I think, as a nation state, as a, civil, as a global power and as a civilization, these things change very quickly. Um, we can sit here and talk about how, well, Russia is no military threat to us, and that's true today. Um, but from the Russian perspective, what is the U.S. What does U.S. military projection look like in ten years uh, if we have a true financial crisis on our hands as a result of a debt that effectively collapses the economy? We, we were told that in 2008, we were on the precipice. In 2008, 2009, we were on the precipice of a, compl- a global depression, American economy in tatters. That was, that was just a few years ago. So this isn't crazy talk. Um, we, we tend to think in this country, and this is a strategic disadvantage for us in national security matters, uh, we tend to think in 24-hour news cycles and election cycles, whether two years, four years, or six years. That's just the way that we are we are programmed, I think, to view a lot of these circumstances. And yeah, if right now, you know, America, we are, are, every one of our armed services is by far the best, and we're by far the richest, and we kick butt, we're number one. All of that is true. Uh, heck yeah, America. Okay. Um, that is the way we see it now, and that is how, that is the situation. But these um, if you go back just over the last hundred years, look at the rise and fall of major powers. And we think of ourselves, especially we, we have this conception of history. Oh, well, the founding fathers, they were geniuses. And we had, you know, America, manifest destiny. We had some rough stuff here and there, but more or less we were destined from our origins to become uh, the global superpower because of the genius of the founding and everything. And maybe, yeah, sure, that's that's true in that it has happened, but there were a couple of times when we could have been, uh, especially in our country's infancy, with some of the great European powers breathing down our neck and looking for a period to strike, not just the British originally, and then again in uh, the War of 1812. Um, this could have gone south on us really quickly. This could have gone bad on us very quickly, and you see the rise and fall of great powers in Europe uh, over the course of just American history. And 
so that's why I mean the, the, I don't think the Russians view the future as set. We're used to thinking of this as we are the global power. We're number one. We're going to continue to be number one. Uh, you know, they thought that they could have taken us on, but a few decades ago. If you want to look twenty or thirty years in the future, I'm sure there are plenty of Russian uh, geo strategists and uh, Russian nationalists who would say, "Just give us some time." America is spending itself into oblivion. It has a lot of internal divisions now politically. It has identity politics that are taking over its discourse. It has all, you know, you go down the line. It has open, uh, well, not completely open, but it has a porous border to the south. And uh, there, there, are, there are reasons for the Russians to think that they've got, yeah, it's going to take them some time, but they've got some openings against us that right now may look, may look silly, but all, you know, if NATO becomes... Uh, legitimately obsolete in five or ten years because we're no longer willing. Just just start with the conception of are we really going to go to war with Russia if they did invade Latvia? It's an interesting question. I know everybody in the national security establishment would say yes, but I mean, you, you, would you you want to go and fight over Latvia? Uh, uh, yeah, yes, because of U.S. Uh, agreements under what is it uh, NATO article NATO Article Five, and I, I I understand all of that, but. Really think really think about that one. It's not as clear. And Rex Tillerson saying, I think it was earlier today, uh, bringing us back into the news cycle here, which I will do, by the way, with Syria after the break. Sorry. Uh, Rex Tillerson, I think, said something along the lines of, you know, why should the taxpayer care about Ukraine? I, I, I think it's fascinating to watch people's reaction. Oh, how, how, how dare he? Well, Ukraine's not a NATO country. I'm glad that everyone stopped calling it the Ukraine, my Ukrainian Friends got annoyed with that after a while. They said, no, it's just Ukraine. Stop saying the Ukraine. Everyone used to say the Ukraine, but now that it's been in the news cycle for a while, people say Ukraine. It means borderland, by the way. Geography, my friends. Geography. Um, geography matters. Um, geography matters and biology wins. These are uh, oftentimes phrases that are applicable in our analysis. Um, so uh, Ukraine is a place that we're just supposed to assume we have a major national security interest. We can dis- we can discuss and describe it, but uh, knee jerk reactionary national security policy is never a good thing. Um, all right, I've been talking about all this stuff. We're going to have to discuss a little bit of Syria, and then we'll get into more of the political side of things. Bernie Sanders' economic policy might be making a comeback. Ooh, that'll be it's going to be amazing, baby. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck on the phones. Back in a few minutes. Welcome back, team. Uh, Syria, that was a big part of the discussions today, both uh, between, well, between Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Rex Tillerson, also getting a lot of attention, of course, in the media. And you had uh, Trump, who met earlier today with uh, the Secretary General of NATO, um, so that is a place where Trump is once again showing that he's not some outside, strange, oh gosh, he's going to upend all the foreign policy that we've had for decades president after all. I have to tell you, you know, I was over at CNN um, for, well, I was over there for two years, but I also, during the election, used to hear all this talk about how Trump would destroy NATO and Trump was going to... The the subtext was often that Trump was going to lead us into a foolish uh, nuclear war, 
And that obviously hasn't happened. I mean, thank heavens. It's not going to happen, though. He's also uh, not allowing for uh, the destruction of NATO. That's not what he's pushing for. And on Syria, I said this last week, There's there hasn't been some enormous policy shift. Uh, there has been the beginning of what can be a tremendous shift in policy. Here's what Trump had to say earlier today. We're not going into Syria. But when I see people using horrible, horrible chemical weapons, which they agreed not to use under the Obama administration, but they violated it. They said they got rid of them. Hey, look, what I did should have been done by the Obama administration a long time before I did it. And you would have had a much better, I think Syria would be a lot better off right now. This is what I was saying to you last week. The first, the, the first strike is just that. It creates a credible future threat of force. The moment Obama backed off of the red line, it was an open field, open season for Assad, for Russia, for Iran, and things got much worse in Syria because they knew there'd be no consequences. There was no resistance, no military resistance they would come up against. Sure, shut, shutting down an airfield and firing 59 or 60 missiles, whatever it was, I know one they say missed, but uh, it's between 50 and $100 million of ordnance, depending on how you uh, gauge it. Um, but shutting down an airfield for 24 hours doesn't change very much at all in Syria. Shutting down five airfields the next time, that, that might get their attention. Now, I know that's an escalation. They may respond to that. Now, all of a sudden, we might have artillery that's landing pretty close to U.S. advisors that are with the Kurds fighting against, uh, you know, the Islamic State. Right now, all of a sudden, you start to worry about the response. But here's what, uh, here's what uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis had to say about this. If they use chemical weapons... They are going to pay a very, very stiff price. Upping the cost of doing the business of atrocities for the Assad regime. Now you've established, you could say in business terms, an opening point for negotiations. Now you've set the anchor point with, well, guess what? If you do that, there will be a military response. And the next time around, it might really hurt. That can affect Assad's calculations without risking any U.S. soldiers, boots on the ground in Syria, um, that can affect the way this conflict goes. We'll get into this more, and uh, then we'll talk about some domestic politics. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. I don't understand the fascination with uh, the, the palace intrigue in the White House about who may stay and, and who may go of Trump's advisors. Um, it just doesn't seem to me to be we've got key players in place and very strong ones with Mattis at defense and with McMaster now as national security advisor. It looks like the NSC will be a, a pretty fine as finely tuned a machine as anything that's at that level of federal government can be um, realistically. Uh, but all the stuff about Bannon versus Kushner, it strikes me as a little. Eh, a little soap opera-ish, as in doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, if Bannon leaves, so be it. Bannon was a late addition to the Trump campaign. We all remember that. 
that guy Manafort, who there's now reports today is going to be registering as a as a foreign agent. Um, it's, uh, it's a little little bit not not so good. Um, not a not a big deal for the Trump administration. I don't think there are plenty of these guys that uh, go around the world and are political consultants of one kind or another, and it's a somewhat mercenary approach. Political mercenaries. I'm talking about the mercenary mercenaries, uh, but. Manafort's uh, going to have to face up to what he did one way or the other. I don't know if he did anything wrong or not. It looks a little shady, but who knows? Um, and registering as a foreign agent after the fact is not unusual because some of these federal laws start to get a little a little hazy. And I'm not, look, I'm not the Manafort defense team here. I'm just telling you. And then the stuff about Carter Page, I saw that last night. I didn't really have a time to read and digest it because it came up towards the end of the show, but a uh, couple of quick thoughts on it. One, uh, if evidence of an investigation, in this case an FBI investigation into Carter Page, who wasn't even a senior member of the Trump team by by anyone's recollection. this is I remember the first time I heard this guy's name was in regard to some investigation about Russia ties. And I was like, wait, what? And I was, you know, I was over at CNN and other places. I was working for the Blaze, talking to people all the time about the election and in the green room with a lot, I met a lot of the Trump surrogates and spokespersons over the course of the campaign from, from being on TV with them or, or being in the green room when they're in the green room. And I never met this Carter, this Carter Page guy. was yeah, sound, I mean, like he's not a glorified intern, but it didn't sound like he had all that much in the way of connections to the administration. I could be wrong. I, I don't know. But it, it, I, I certainly certainly wasn't the same level. I mean, Manafort was campaign chairman. That, that's a pretty big deal. I think that's fair to say. Um, but when we look at some of these other figures that have gotten attention recently, Carter Page. Okay, let's let's look at Carter Page for a second. They say there's an FBI investigation. If the presence of an FBI investigation is enough to make someone untouchable, how the heck was Hillary Clinton the Democrat nominee for president of the United States? Someone explain that to me. If the mere presence of an invest, you know, the confirmation of an invest of an FBI investigation, um, and we know there's been uh, because James Comey, the FBI, told us there has been confirmation that there is a counterintelligence investigation ongoing about Russia Trump ties. A lot, there are a lot of investigations about a lot of things, folks, that don't turn into anything. They don't mean anything. In the case of Hillary, there was an FBI investigation. There should have been an FBI investigation. She did break the law. They chose not to bring charges. And so we are all clear, prosecutors can always choose not to bring charges. Theoretically, they tend to not do this because it would look really bad and... but, you know, the, the prosecutors could find out that you've got, you know, 10, 10 bodies stashed in the closet and maybe like, ah, you know, we're, we're, we're going to we're going to defer prosecution on this one. We're not going to. They could do that. They, they don't have to. I mean, then you can get into, well, can the if the federal prosecutors or rather if the local or state prosecutors can't get you, can they try and, and jam a federal charge in on you? A lot of the time they can do that, by the way, especially things like drugs or anything that involves a gun be surprised how often the feds can swoop in if the and and we've even seen some cases this came up with the uh the trayvon uh martin case as well as a couple of others but i'm blanking on which ones right now where it was a local a local murder investigation or a local murder case 
and the DA didn't bring charges, and then the feds were trying to find if they could bring a wrongful death civil rights investigation. I mean, so there's any number of ways they can come after you. The point here being an investigation is not evidence of anything, or the presence of investigation is not evidence of anything other than the fact that there's evidence. doesn't mean you're guilty. doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It just means they're looking into it. Now I understand. I'm not naive. Usually if the FBI is looking at you, there's some reason. And usually when the feds bring charges, they are actually correct. Uh, because if you look at the number of federal cases, first of all, 97% of federal cases, I think it's 97%, might even be a little higher than that, are uh, plea bargain cases. They don't, they, go to, they don't go to trial. And a vast majority of those cases, when after the indictment is brought, uh, then there is a guilty plea of, for much lesser, a much lesser sentence, but that's what ends up happening. So anyway, so Hillary was investigated too, and she was the Democrat nominee. So the fact that there is a counterintelligence investigation, and remember, that was for violations of the Espionage Act, which is a, I will say is a crap law, but it's, there are some parts of it that are necessary. Overall, though, it's kind of a legal monstrosity, a conversation for another day. Um, I always think it's interesting when people, we talk so much about, uh, you know, there's there's the genius of the founding, and I'll speak to some of my conservative friends even about this, and I'll say, you know that the whole First Amendment thing, we, we talk about how the founding fathers believed so strongly in free speech, but you know, they, they, there were the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, they, they kind of tried in the first, uh, you know, uh, the, the first decade or so of the republic's existence to make it a crime to advocate certain things in politics, right? We, we get that, right? <laughs> that was, and, and actually, those who will talk about... I mean, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That it may have been because World War, you know, lead up to World War One or U.S. entry to World War One, uh, advocating for neutrality uh, and taking a socialist view was was uh, handing out socialist pamphlets. It was a, it was illegal. Uh, so our our record with free speech is not nearly as good as our principles regarding free speech. I just like to point that the Alien and Sedition Acts were uh, preposterous. I mean, they they made free speech not really a thing. Uh, of course, they didn't last very long. Um, and the Espionage Act is also very problematic. But Hillary violated part of the Espionage Act. She did, and they didn't bring charges. So now when we look at uh, whether or not Carter Page, bringing us back into the news cycle of today instead of being in the midst of a meandering buck rant here, Carter Page, there's the report of the Washington Post. He's come out and given some interviews. I think he compared himself to Martin Luther King because of surveillance on Martin Luther King. If I saw that right earlier today, which is uh, very, very, very unwise for Carter Page to go there in any any way, shape or form. Um, But he did. Uh, But so there's an investigation of this guy. That's not a big deal. That doesn't necessarily mean anything for Trump. And the ease with which members of the media are willing to take just because well, I take it on faith, I guess, uh, just because they don't want to think for a second they may have been wrong. The ease with which they'll come up with a, well, Trump isn't really giving Russia a hard time. Uh, Trump doesn't mean any of this stuff. This is all part of the the, the Russia ruse um, that is trying to throw people, the American people, off the scent of the Trump-Russia collusion. I mean, they sound crazy on this, don't they? This isn't just a one-off thing. This is now a matter of policy. Um, This is serious business here. And you have uh, not just pushback on policy that's been occurring today and some 
tough talk with Russia on uh, on Syria. There are, there are allegations now. The administration is saying that Russia knew about the chemical weapons, didn't do anything about it, and was therefore at a at a level uh, at an ignomi- uh, ignominious level complicit in all this stuff. So that's another part of this that we have to keep in mind. You got Nikki Haley at the United Nations. Well, she's taken the Russians uh, to task, and she said the following. I think that if you look at the fact that when this information came out, they were so quick to defend. They didn't look shocked. They didn't look surprised. They were so quick to defend. They knew what was going on. I, I think that they knew, yeah. She thinks that they knew. So there you have it. Um, I, I don't know if there's any new story even to talk about on the Russia-Trump collusion. The Carter Page stuff was not as... Uh, I had a friend text message me today. Of course, one of my um, very uh, over-educated liberal friends. Uh, you know, isn't, doesn't this show that, that there's, there's not just smoke, but there's fires? And no. What does the Carter Page thing have to do with anything? First, nothing has been proven, and as I said, do you keep that in mind? The existence of an if the existence of an investigation is enough to condemn someone's character and assume their assume wrongdoing, well, then how do, why do we have to wait so long with Hillary, the Democrat nominee for president? Everybody was under FBI. She was under FBI invest, not her server. It wasn't a security review. She was under investigation. Okay, her actions as Secretary of State, no less, not even for, like, running a Ponzi scheme or a stock scandal or something. You know, sometimes you get a tip, you act on it, people make mistakes. No, this was national security stuff. She was Secretary of State. Uh, and they they covered that whole thing up. That was not a big deal. This is supposed to be a big deal. Why? What do we think Carter Page was doing? I, I always come back to this. I, I want people to have to articulate the theories behind the allegations because the moment they start to you can look at them and say you know you're kind of delusional right this this doesn't make any sense so this low-level political operative was meeting with fsb guys in what smoke smoky bars and talking about how they were gonna hack into uh podesta's email account of the dnc so that they could release emails showing that bernie sanders wasn't getting fair treatment by the dnc which we all knew anyway and what was the big, what was the big revelation again? That Chelsea's a brat and bosses people around. Who cares? I mean, did anyone not, not assume that anyway? I don't even remember what these revelations. But this was the big scheme. I, and and what is the charge? They think that they will get out of all of this. They believe that they'll be able to prosecute under the Logan Act. Well, that would be interesting because it would literally be a first, never been used before. I think uh, any any decent public defender would get the, get the, uh, him out of that one. So what is all of this? I think it's a recognition on the part of major media outlets that while they, they think that they can just, if need be, back away from the coverage of this and move on, a lot of us who have been watching this whole thing play out and, in fact, have taken the heat from those who suggest that somehow this is all some giant plot and we refuse you know we're trumpsters and we're such uh, such idiots to not see what's so clear and then i say well explain to me how it's clear and they, they are oh, you're just you're just dumb you don't know well no explain to me let's let's agree that i'm dumb explain to me how trump did all this and why he did all this 
and how this would make sense to anybody. Oh, you don't, you don't get it. There's going to be prosecutions. This president's going. Nope, there's not. Trump's not going to get prosecuted. Uh, I don't think any of his top aides are going to get prosecuted either. Um, we'll see. But even if Manafort did theoretically come under charges for some reason, they got rid of Manafort midway through the election. Anyway, see, this is uh, I, I try to strike a balance here between talking about this. I think there are some folks out there in the media that know that right now on the right, if you ju- the, the safe play is to just spend all of your time defending everything that Trump does. Or if you're never Trump or just bash everything Trump does. But isn't it more intellectually honest to just deal with it piece by piece, day by day, news story by news story? You know, yesterday with Sean Spicer, I told you, yeah, what he said was dumb. He didn't mean it as some huge affront to the memory of uh, uh, all of those that were murdered in the Holocaust, but it was dumb. Uh, there are some Trump uh, Trump supporters there. Oh, Sean Spicer, it's just a media conspiracy. No, what he said was dumb, but we also don't have to blow it out of proportion. He said he was sorry. Move on. All right. Uh, hitting a break. 844-900-2825 on those phone lines. Team Buck. Light him up. I'll be right back. Interesting. Of course, the Democrats are already thinking about how they can mount a comeback in the midterm elections. They uh, are out of power across the board here in the government, except in the judiciary, at least below the Supreme Court level. Plenty of Democrat leftist uh, pseudo legislatures or or de facto. That's the term I was looking for. De facto legislatures uh, operating in judges robes. Uh, but they're crafting an economic message around always back Bernie Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders and his populism, um, which I do think I was having discussion with uh, a friend of mine recently about this, too, uh, that Sanders would have been a, it would have been a more interesting race if it was Sanders against Trump, because there were some areas of crossover. A lot of the uh, pro Uh, pro-worker and uh, pro-American trade sentiment that Bernie Sanders was uh, spouting during the primary on the Democrat side was very similar to what you heard from Trump, as as you know. I did see, but I I saw Bernie once on the street. Uh, It was was great. It was a great moment. Uh, There was this this flurry of activity, and I figured it must be a celebrity. Like, you know, one of the real housewives was walking down 6th Avenue or something, and everybody was trying to get or you know, one of the Kardashians trying to get trying to get a photo because there was this gaggle of people that was moving in this big mass down the street, and uh, sure enough, it was the burn. So I got to see the burn. I didn't get to shake his hand, so I didn't get to to touch the burn, but I did get to I did get to see the burn. Um, and I, I thought he was an he was an interesting guy. I do think he's well intentioned. I mean, I think he would destroy the economy if you if he could, but uh, I don't think he's. And of course, he's a he's a Democrat socialist with three houses, and and that's all true. Um, he bothers me a lot less than Elizabeth Warren. I will say that, um, but I think he means a lot of what he says. He just I I also think and I don't mean this to be condescending, although it's going to sound condescending. I just don't think he knows any better. I don't think he understands the economic impacts of the policies that he advocates. And if he does understand them, he is far too quick to ignore them in favor of, well, good intentions and social and redistributive justice. Uh, But so that's what the Democrats are looking at right now. They need something because just pure 
Trump opposition is is clearly going to be a major part of what they offer up. Let's not pretend they're not going to come up with a bunch of new, brilliant ideas. Um, but economic populism that I'm assuming will bounce off of some of the Trumpian uh, big government offerings that are out there, like paid family leave and the infrastructure spending. This is not conservative stuff. We all know that um, Trump is not a traditional conservative. In fact, you know, I don't think Trump is an is ideologically a conservative. He's done. He's put Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. He's done some things that will certainly make conservatives happy. He has thus far, I think, in many ways, you could argue, thus far, Trump has acted as a conservative in office on important issues. Um, but I don't think he's ideologically aligned with it. Anyway, point here being that you can already start to see the outline of what the Democrat pitch will be for the midterm elections. And they're going to borrow some Trumpism for some Sandersism. And we're going to have the second coming of the Sandernistas. And just wait. Just wait. But who will be the figurehead? Uh, I mean, Bernie's already a senator from Vermont, right? So who's going to be the one who is waving the Democrat socialist flag for the Democrats. We'll have to see. Um, Hour three coming up. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Let's turn our attention to campus politics, progressive insanity, and the silencing of free speech. Our guest is Rob Montz. He is the director of a documentary, uh, uh, he's the filmmaker behind Silence You Part 2 and Silence You. Uh, Silence You Part 2 is What Has Yale Become? Uh, Rob, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Buck, it's excellent to be here with you. All right, so tell us first about Silence You, and then we'll move on to Silence You Part 2. What, what was Silence You about? Right, so I have to get in the the obligatory uh, marketing plug, which is that if people want to watch either one of these mini docs, they just go to silenceu.com, silence the the letter u.com. Yeah, so the first one is about me returning to my alma mater of Brown University. You went to Brown? That's like the commie factory. That place is crazy. Well, okay, all right, all right. (laughs) I'm just saying, I know people from Brown. A family member went to Brown, and Brown is nuts. Brown is like Wesleyan oberlin reed college crazy it's next level crazy so i I gotta tell you that actually wasn't my experience even as someone who was sort of openly a a libertarian uh when i went there in the early 2000s and this is this is actually really important which is when i was there i was definitely in the political minority but people even on the opposite side of the political spectrum endorsed the basic norms of civil discourse. So I could have a lot of conversations and debates with people that disagreed with me. They could be productive for both sides and I could learn something and I could potentially teach them something as well. And the reason that I went back and the reason that I worked with We The Internet TV to sort of make the first mini doc is that those norms have been corroded. They've started collapsing 
in the particular year in which stuff has sort of started changing is around 2013. So I actually don't think it's – I wouldn't overly characterize the politics on these campuses because I do think that up until recent memory, they actually were reasonably intellectually dynamic places, and something has switched over the last couple of years. And the dominant, the predominant campus political culture has become much more liberal, much more censorious, much more unaccommodating to positions that are critical of the, you know, the standard liberal orthodoxy. Oh no, I, 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 I'm, uh, I'm, been, I've been saying for a while that it seems to have gotten worse. I remember I went to Amherst, which is pretty liberal, uh, but, but at least when I was there, Scalia, when he came to speak, may he rest in peace. Uh, no, there was no question that he was going to be allowed to speak, right? I mean, there, there was there was no effort to bar the doors. They just boycott the speech. Okay, you can boycott a speech. Now they try to stop people from even speaking, physically stop them from speaking. We actually had Heather McDonald on the show earlier this week who had that experience oh, out at Claremont yeah. McKenna yeah, as yeah, well yeah. as at, at UCLA. So, so silence you. You go to Brown. You find these uh, intolerant uh, that intolerance has become normalized, to borrow a word from the left, and then you move on because of uh, the Professor Christakis uh, situation. And we have a cl- clip. This is not the clip where there's any cursing or screaming, right? Okay, it's good. We have a, a Christakis clip uh, from Yale University. I want to share with everybody, and then, Rob, you can tell us about it. Play clip 48, please. Who gets to decide, guys? How about, how about who when is or what if everybody says, I am hurt? Does that mean everyone else has to stop speaking? You are being racist. Why can't you say sorry? You take care of me, and you haven't been doing that. Now I want your job to be taken from you. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to have this job. Let us tell you if you're being racist. Okay, no, 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 no. no. Actually, that is actually how it works. One second. Let me say something else. So I have a vision of us as people, as human beings. (laughs) Yes. That actually privileges our common humanity. That is interested not in what is different among us, but what is the same. If you deny that, then what is the reason that you ask to be heard? Your experiences will never connect to mine. Empathy does, is not necessary for you to understand that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a bunch of little idiotic brats is my first. <laughs> I saw some of the other some of the other exchanges they had, including where uh, one of those students was screaming. This is at Yale University, everybody. It was that very famous exchange went viral where Professor Christakis is, has a student screaming and cursing in his face. Uh, this is at Yale, which is supposed to be fancy, although all these schools, by the way, have debased themselves and are, and are not very serious places anymore, which is a whole separate discussion. Maybe we'll get a chance to get into that. But just give us a little of the background, Rob, and then uh, on this Christakis case and then what you found out with Silence You Part 2. And your professor at Yale University. He's an expert at um, kind of the science of social networks. Like, are there ways in which you, uh, how, how do kind of behaviors and norms spread throughout a network? And he has devoted his life to taking that expertise and using it to accelerate the adoption of positive healthcare behaviors in the developing world. And also someone who kind of self-identifies as a Democrat, as a liberal, definitely not a conservative reactionary in any sense. Uh, So he and his wife end up sending out this email related to appropriation, uh, cultural appropriation as it, as it relates to Halloween costumes. And that there's a sequence of events and that ends with him being confronted by about 50 or 70 students in a 
quad of one of the residential communities at Yale University, and that's where those clips come from, right? That's where that's 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 where that kind of behavior comes from. The thing I want to say though, and I, I hope I really like, you know, for for your audience at least, is that I don't think that the ultimate drivers of the kind of repulsive behavior you saw from the students fits into a neat political narrative of left versus right or political correctness versus free speech. Like those issues are, those issues do matter, but I actually think the deeper foundational drivers of that kind of repulsive behavior don't actually kind of fall along those standard traditional binaries. There's actually a deeper, a deeper intellectual rod, a deeper scandal here that typically gets ignored by the kind of common narrative about, you know, free speech violations on college. Okay, campus. that's quite a lead-in. You know, what is it then? I don't want to tell them though. I want people to go watch the doc. I mean, uh, I because <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 hard. To, you're leaving that now. I now we we can't we can't challenge this premise that this isn't left right. Uh, I will say that I've never seen video like that of the college Republicans anywhere in the country ever 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 speaking to a professor that way. But they also wouldn't adopt that rhetoric because. It doesn't fit in with their political beliefs. So uh, you, you can tell me that it's not political or there's something else and that you want people to see the documentary. But I have to tell you, I am suspect right now. <laughs> As somebody who's spent, spent a fair amount of time around liberals on college campuses, it is uh, the, the ones who are the most ardent uh, Clinton and Sanders supporters, etc., are the ones who are also the most likely to scream in professors or other students' faces, to burn American flags, to act like children to shut down speech and debate uh, as a matter of stopping speech that they view as violent. So how is that not political? You're going to have to sell me on this a little more. Well, I mean, Buck, it's been, it's been a very pleasant interview so far, but I do want to disagree with you. I, I, I mean, in, in a sense that the reason it's not happening among college Republicans on a lot of college campuses isn't because there aren't some very profound anti-intellectual strands among the American political right. It's that just Republicans don't have enough power in order to enact those anti-intellectual impulses. But I would say— well, So now you'll have to identify for me the corollary that the left has with speech I don't like equals violence, therefore I can use violence against it. And that's a mainstream progressive Democrat talking point. Now, you'll hear that from people across the board. People will defend it. Community organizers, pundits on TV, they'll say that, yes, that is true. What's the corollary on the right? The alt-right— the all right in a lot of ways has adopted some of the same insidious kind of rhetorical tools of the most extreme social justice warrior activists. Like they use identity politics, but their identity politics happens to be people that are white. They reject the norms of like logic and evidence as means of getting at the truth. And they replace it with basically uh, the authoritarian assertions of their their daddy, Donald Trump. Again, as someone who has mixed feelings about Whoa. Trump, <laughs> we, we just we I just know. made a we just made a whole a whole bunch of jumps there. That was interesting. So wait, l- l- let's step back for a second. Uh, the alt right is prominent on what campus? Where do you, where do you see the alt right in full force? Right. Just so I just so I can start to pick specifics so, here I, with I, the I, argument. I, where, where does the alt right exist on college campuses at all? It's not on college campuses. And okay, wh- wh- who who in, who in the Republican Party? Uh, it gives voice to the alt-right platform. Now, I mean, if you're going to tell me Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump is pro-gay marriage, wants family leave. Uh, right. We've actually spent the whole show today talking about how his foreign policy thus far is a pretty mainstream Republican slash Democrat consensus foreign policy. So to call him, all, uh, anyway, 
I, I don't want to get into an argument with you about whether Donald Trump is alt-right or not, because then this whole thing is going to go off the rails. But I do need you to explain to me why it is that you think that what is now mainstream progressivism, which I don't think you would deny is the case when we're talking about progressives on college campuses. I mean, you had the Obama administration, for example, perpetra- or, or, or uh, a part of the campus rape epidemic hoax that was out there, which it's not a real thing. The statistics don't support it. It's a complete hysteria that's ginned up for uh, a lot of reasons, but having to do with social justice ideology. Uh, that goes all the way to the top. That was all the way at the top of the administration and then all the way down to college campuses. How? Where is the equivalent on the right? I, I, I'm I'm curious, and I, I will be quiet now so you can tell me where is the equivalent. Mean, yeah. Tell me that there are a few websites that are alt-right is not the same as saying that that's the prevalent ideology of either college conservatives or even among the uh, in the Republican Party. So I, I definitely agree that I think the kind of the, the politics as practiced on elite American campuses has become quite popular among like the people in power that are responsible for the advancement of leftist politics. I agree with that. And I don't think that the alt-right, at least as I define it, has a similar sway on the politics of the right. I would say this though, maybe where I disagree with you, which is that I've noticed a tendency among people that rightfully find these trends on these elite campuses repulsive and anti-intellectual, that the response is not, well, then I'm going to embody the standard liberal arts norms of uh, intellectual humility, commitment to reason, commitment to logic, a rejection of tribal politics, um, an attempt to be empathetic with people that disagree with me, that that's not the standard strategy that I've seen a lot, that the strategy that I've seen among people that, again, rightfully are repulsed by this is just to sort of emulate exactly the same tactics that they've seen, but with a with a right-leaning seasoning to them. Where, right. where does this happen? Uh, you've done a documentary about how this happens on the left on campuses. Where does this happen on the right? Where where do you not, see not this? On college campuses. I would say that the, the right is too politically marginalized on most college campuses for their, I just mean generally in American politics, that there are oftentimes, I do think for, um, Trump occasionally. Okay, so you you think that Trump you think that Trumpism is at some level a reactionary uh, in response to this progressive idea. But I mean, we're 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 trying to have a discussion about the politics of, of college campuses. I mean, to say that Trumpism uh, that's an, another yeah, well, layer of discussion that we could add on to this. You initially started this off by telling that you think that the right does this too. But we're talking about your documentaries about what goes on on campuses and the politics of the academy. And this doesn't exist actually in the academy then. So, so we've we've established that you're saying that 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 in society in in American society there are reactionary people on the right too. But that doesn't really tell us very much because it doesn't exist on campuses. So we can we can agree that it doesn't exist on campuses. Right, but it does exist in the highest reaches of political power in the country. Right. But again, I think Donald Trump is a mixed. He's he's a very complicated fellow with complicated politics, but there are often times in which he and there's people that have been fans of his, I mean, I think a guy like Milo, um, where their response to, again, obviously reprehensible intellectual trends in the academy 
is not to model liberal arts values, but it's to yeah. But but, but aren't you aren't you are, the, the the people that are on campuses that are even trying to speak out against this are a a beleaguered ideological minority. I mean, especially in the campus setting, as I'm sure your research or time spent on these campuses would show you, you are under siege. You are surrounded by little Stalinist leftist totalitarians who decide what you can say, how you can say it, what's acceptable practice, how you can dress, how you can wear your hair, what kind of food you can serve in the cafeteria. I, 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 I'm, I, you're worried about how the how they're responding to that. You don't think they're responding to that in in the best way. I mean, I don't know how people can respond to that. I don't think they're I don't think they're even able to respond because they're so overwhelmed. I, I don't think it's to be cruel in response. I think it's to show what real intellectualism looks like. I, but I but but who's being? But we're talking about campuses, and you who's being cruel in response? Do we have time to answer this question? Ah, no. Unfor- yeah, unfortunately, we don't. I mean, I, I think that we're, we're talking about college campuses I, and how it interacts there. And you want to tell me that, like, Trump is alt-right and bad. And that, that has nothing well, to not do with... I, say. But I, I should say, but I think that you and I ultimately agree on more than maybe we're potentially letting on. Um, but there's not time for it. I have to say, if people want to see the documentaries... Yes, silenceyou.com, silence everybody. Rob Montz is the filmmaker. Silenceyou.com is his film. Rob, we'll have to have you back to finish this. Thanks for joining us. Oh man, I should I should have known right away we were heading for some some rocky some rocky shores there, my friends. As, as soon as I said Brown is a commie factor, and he's like, well, well, that wasn't my experience. Really? Brown is among the most progressive left wing schools in the country, uh, based on the dozens of friends I've had go there and telling me about what it's like as well. I mean, I've only, I was only able to go to one undergrad school. I have to say, it's not like I can claim to have gone to all these places, but if you look up stories on Brown, that's all you had to know there. It's like, well, Brown wasn't that bad. Hmm. Well, Wesleyan has naked dorms or had a naked dorm. Uh, so maybe Wesleyan takes the cake. Um, but yeah, it's up there, man. Uh, I, I when I I thought we were I thought we were making headway here about how it it is just the the totalitarian impulse to shut down speech on a college campus comes from the left. There is no corollary on the right. There's no, and the the alt right boogeyman just needs to go away here with all you know. Who knows? Maybe maybe Bannon's going to be out of the administration. Maybe he's not. I know people say that Breitbart gave voice to the alt right, or Bannon had said that, but. Uh, the, the policies that this administration is pursuing is uh, I, what, what is the alt-right policy? Well, the, the temporary travel ban on and but that's not even this is a, a shift in the discussion. We're talking about how this plays out on college campuses and the assumption it, it kind of reminded me of of how the argument goes with some people that well, sure, um, you know the the Muslim majority is uh, ruthlessly, persecuting well in many cases they persecuted to the to the point of they no longer exist in certain countries but it's persecuting either the christian or jewish minority in their country and it would be like if somebody said well you know if the roles were reversed the christians or the jews would be doing the same thing to the muslims like well uh, i'm gonna need some historical evidence for that i'm gonna need a little you know i'm gonna need uh recent history telling me that that's the case i, I don't like just this assertion of well you know everybody every, everybody makes mistakes you know all groups do bad things in the name of group identity. It's like, mm, we're going to need a little more. We're going to need a little more than that. Baba Buck's going to need some evidence here.
Um, but yeah, that was, I was, I'm sorry guys, if that got off the, uh, got, got off the rails a little bit. I was, I was going to let the gentleman speak about, uh, what he found out at Yale and we didn't even get there. Uh, but that Yale case is, it, you, you got to go back and, and just watch that video of pr- Professor Christakis, something like that. Um, yeah, Christakis getting screamed at by these students. Uh, the thing that really, uh, that, that struck me about the summary that I have here of this, uh, of, of Mr. Mons's documentary is that he's at least willing to say these, these schools, and I mean the very fancy schools, I mean the, you know, $55,000 a year in tuition, Ivy and equivalent universities, Ivy League and, and of that caliber stature in terms of admissions difficulty, they are largely unserious places now. Uh, it doesn't impress me when someone goes there. I don't see someone's degree from an Ivy League undergraduate program and think they're so smart or so worthy. Uh, you know what I think? And I know people that have worked. I have friends who've worked on the admissions committees at these places. Oh, yeah. So I know. What I think to myself is, what's the reason this person got in there? Is it mumsy and daddy? Is it preferred identity group? Is it athletic recruit? Is it social justice? I mean, you know, you go down the line. Because it doesn't mean that you're even a valedictorian of your school. And maybe your school wasn't even that good because it was full of social justice warriors anyway. Who knows? All right, we got to talk about uh, some other stuff, so stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. All right, everyone, welcome back. We're joined by our friend Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, uh, former FEC commissioner, DOJ lawyer, and author of the book Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, great to have you, sir. Thanks for having me back. Let's talk a bit about what uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had to say yesterday. I know you've written about this as well. He's saying there's going to be a change in policy from DOJ on enforcement priorities when it comes to immigration. What do you make of this? Uh, how will this really be be felt by uh, Border Patrol, Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers, and the whole apparatus? Well, he sent, in addition to giving his speech down in, in Nogales, um, uh, Session sent a memo out to the uh, U.S. attorney's offices all over the country. There are 94 of them across the nation. And he said, I want you to prioritize uh, prosecuting uh, anyone who brings in and harbors aliens, who aids and assists criminal aliens to enter. Uh, and so he clearly is going to go after the smugglers, the human traffickers, the ones who mostly work for the Mexican drug cartels the folks who are paid to smuggle uh, aliens across the border and anybody in the U.S. who uh, then helps them uh, stay here. So they're going to go after the coyotes. They're going to go after anybody who is trafficking, peop- trafficking people uh, as, as oftentimes as part of, of a cartel operation. What about sanctuary cities, though? Do you, do you see that as, as being tied into the enforcement priorities here? Har- harboring illegals, is, is that going to be the next place they go? Uh, yeah, because he, he, he has told prosecutors you have to go after folks who, who aid and harbor illegals. Now, they did say he did say that a priority should be uh, anyone, for example, who, who smuggles in three or more aliens. But uh, still, that's uh, going to cover a whole lot of people. Now, the other thing he, he said in that memo 
is that, remember, we have this problem with individuals who come to the U.S., are deported, and then come back. And um, the first time you uh, do that, it's a misdemeanor. The second time you do it, it's a felony to come back after you've been deported. The the prior administration really didn't do much about that. Um, uh, Sessions says in his memo, uh, I want you to prioritize bringing felony charges against illegal aliens who've already been de- deported at least twice, or you can go after folks who've only been deported once if they have a history of felony crimes, gang membership, or, or other aggravating factors. Like so, so currently the law says if you come back, it's a misdemeanor after the first deportation. It's really on the second one that current law says you can get hit with a felony. What is it, up, up to 10 years in federal prison for that? Yeah, it's it, it, it's a long time in federal prison, and you can tell how important this is because, remember, the woman who uh, was killed in San Francisco two years ago, Kate Steinle, she was killed by an illegal alien who not only had an extensive criminal history, but he had been deported, I think, at least five pre- previous times. He should have been in prison. He should not have been walking the streets. What about the next steps when it comes to enforcement in the workplace, Hans? Is, is Do you think that's just politically trickier, or does it make sense to just deal with that later because it is a lower priority, obviously, than cartels and, and, and smuggling operations and violent criminals? But it does seem like that would have to be a part of a new and robust immigration enforcement regime do you think they're going to go in that direction? Are we going to see workplace enforcement, maybe E-Verify or similar systems? Yeah, no, I think we are. Um, if you look, if you go back to uh, Inauguration Day, January 20th, and you look at the history of what's happened since then, um, the president has taken a series of steps, you know, one after another. Remember, he's issued three different executive orders on uh, immigration. Uh, now we have the attorney general issuing a... Uh, memo to U.S. prosecutors about their priorities. We've got the U.S. Attorney General just uh, two weeks ago saying they were going to cut off funding to uh, sanctuary cities. So you've got a whole series of steps going down the line. And uh, going after employers who knowingly hire uh, illegal aliens, I I think, is going to be the next step that they take. And that's crucial, because if they do that, you're going to have huge numbers of illegal aliens starting to self-deport when they can't find employment and can't make money. This is what Mitt Romney was talking about in the 2012 election, and there were Republicans who were making fun of him for the term self-deportation. But if there's workplace enforcement, as you point out, and I agree, just it stands to reason, of course, there'll be self-deportation. Of course, people will say, well, if I can't work here despite my legal status, I got to go back to wherever it is that I originally came from. No, no, that's right. And in fact, we know that will happen because we uh, we saw that happen in Arizona a couple of years ago. Uh, Arizona passed a law which was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court that said, um, if you're an employer in our state, uh, you must use the E-Verify system. And if, despite using the E-Verify system, you knowingly hire an illegal alien uh, to work at your place of employment. Um, you may lose your business license uh, in the state of Arizona. That caused employers to um, take notice, uh, to quit hiring uh, so many illegal aliens, and the, uh, there, was, there was evidence out there that illegal aliens started leaving the state. 
And if you did that all over the U.S., they wouldn't just be leaving specific states. Uh, they would be headed for the border. Let's switch gears for a second to uh, your piece on FoxNews.com on the impact that Justice Gorsuch will have on the Supreme Court, the immediate impact. What will it be? Well, as soon as the court comes back from the Easter uh, recess, uh, they'll be hearing uh, one of the first cases he'll, he'll be able to be involved in uh, called Trinity Lutheran Church versus Pauley. This is a religious freedom case involving the state of Missouri. The lower courts, uh, I think, uh, decided this case the wrong way, and uh, he could be the crucial fifth vote to uphold religious freedom rights under the First Amendment. What's the crux of this case? The crux of the case is this. Uh, the state had this program that all nonprofit organizations and schools across the state, private or public, uh, were entitled to apply for. They could get money from the state to buy recycled tires to be used for making children's playgrounds safer. Trinity Lutheran, just like a lot of churches, runs a school. They applied for it. They met all the qualifications for it. But the uh, state refused to give them a grant. Why? Because they said, well, you're a church and we're not going to give you any money. And what else are the main cases that you're, even if they're not right away, what are some of the other big cases where the Gorsuch vote on the court could mean a big difference for what the settled law of the land becomes? Well, for example, uh, there's a a request to take up a, a review of the North Carolina voter ID uh, case. This is a case in which um, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals threw out the voter ID law. Um, If the court were to take it up, hopefully Gorsuch would be the fifth vote to uphold voter ID there. Uh, There's another case out of California um, that is waiting to be uh, uh, heard by the court, that is to decide whether to take it up. It's very important to the Second Amendment. California passed a requirement saying you can't get a concealed carry permit unless you have a good reason for needing it. And I would hope the court would actually take that up and throw out that law, because how many other constitutional rights do you know depend on whether you can prove to the state that you have a good reason to exercise it? Right. This is the distinction in a lot of states when it comes to firearms between, uh, what is it, may issue versus shall issue. A lot of May issue yeah. states out there really mean no issue unless you're connected, yeah, no, that's, that's, you know the sheriff, or yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, the District of Columbia had a had a uh, provision like this, and when they said you have to have a good reason, they meant you got to show that, for example, you're personally threatened. If you simply live in a high crime neighborhood. They didn't consider that sufficient to justify giving you a concealed carry permit. Now I know we're all still. Uh, perhaps basking in the in the glow of Gorsuch's elevation to the court, or at least those of us who feel like this is a, a feather in the Trump administration's cap, that this is uh, progress and, and, and a very good move for the administration. Um, but down the line, there may be another court seat that opens up. Given that the, the so-called nuclear option has already been exercised, what, do you, what does the fight then become with Democrats? Uh, I assume that Trump can appoint whoever he wants and the, Republic, the Republicans in the Senate can just get it through. Yeah, as long as he can hold the Republicans together. I, I really don't understand why Chuck Schumer did this. It's like he cut his own throat. Um, he made it – look, right now we basically replaced a conservative with a conservative. But the second choice of the president – a year from now, two years, three years from now, it, it could be him replacing a, one of the liberals on the court or one of the halftime 
conservatives like uh, uh, Justice Kennedy. And Schumer, by forcing this uh, now, has made it relatively easy for the president to get his next appointment on, and that's the one that's really going to make a difference. Hans Spakovsky is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former FEC commissioner and author of the book Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, uh, great to have you, sir. Appreciate it. Buck, thanks for having me. All right, phone lines are open, team, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We will hit a break and be right back. I know that you've heard a lot over the last couple of days about United Airlines. Uh, I, I felt like we should just, we should finish up the story, though, today. Uh, to close out our show, we can, we can put this United Airlines fiasco to rest, my friends. Um, you had Oscar Munoz, who is the, uh, the CEO, saying, well, first, that this was fine and that they followed protocol. And then he realized, oh, oh gosh, this is bad. I, I must, must change the script here. Uh, and then he came out and, and uh, said that, well, he feels shame from this. For- it's not so much what I thought. It's what I felt. Probably the word ashamed comes to mind. You know, as I think about our business and our people, um, the first thing I think is important to say is to apologize to Dr. Dow, um, his family, uh, the passengers on that flight, our customers, our employees. That is not who our family at United is. And you saw us at a bad moment. And this can never, will never happen again on a United Airlines flight. That's my premise and that's my promise. Why did it take until Tuesday to offer a more full-hearted apology? I think my first uh, reaction to most issues is to get the facts and circumstances. And uh, the initial, my initial words fell short of truly expressing what we were feeling. And that's something that I've learned from. I'm not buying it. Sorry. Uh, the the fascinating part of the United story, I thought, um, other than, of course, just the, the, the opportunity, and this shouldn't be overlooked, everyone. It is a truly bipartisan pastime in this country now to come together, Democrat, Republican, communist and patriot, left and right, uh, to come together in unified hatred of the American domestic airlines. It's something that it can bring us all together. I mean, it is like the Super Bowl of complaining because we all have been through it. That's how bad airlines are. We know it. It's just the it's still re, uh, the reality. What was interesting was that initially you had all these people, as always happens, you have the the dash to Wikipedia, and everyone's looking, especially in the in the journalist and news world, looking to find. Uh, information tidbits to throw into the story here to make it seem like they have some like 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 any of the people writing about this. And to be fair, how could they really? But have the slightest idea what's in the United Carriage contracts and all the other stuff, right? No one reads that stuff. This is like when you download an app and it says, "Do you agree to our terms of service?" The terms of service could be that. That you will you will burn in the fire pits for all eternity, and your soul will be in the hands of Google, and you'd be like, yeah, whatever. You click it, it's you don't care. 
no one reads the terms of service, right? So whatever those terms of service are, we don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure most of you don't know either because no one reads that stuff. No one reads their carriage contract for an airline ticket either. But the more we learned about it, the more you saw that United made it, that, that this was their policy, that they did follow protocol here, and that's even worse because United had made the decision that they would not even go all the way up to the artificially declared ceiling of what they're willing to give someone to give up their seat on one of these planes. They had a, a number in mind, and if you didn't hit that number, then they were calling the cops on somebody. If you wouldn't just get up. I also never found out, and I'd be curious about this, and if any of you know, let me know. Uh, you can go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, by the way. We also have a poll up there about today's show. You can tell me uh, what your favorite part of the show was. Was it our, our filmmaker friend who turned into a rogue liberal on me? I mean, any number of options you can click on. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, but uh, when, we, when we look at the decision that they made here with United, they had a... Uh, an opportunity to solve the problem easily, but it would have cost them money. And they're so uh, used to being able to punish people for profit. And now I know I sound a little Occupy Wall Street, but when we talk about the airlines, my friends, we all do. It's like when you talk about the TSA, you end up feeling or sounding a little like an anarchist. You know, you have enough bad run-ins with the TSA, and you're like, just, I don't even care. Just put me on the plane. Yeah, I'll take my chances. Um. I don't want to go through this anymore. And with the airline, you do start to you do start to sound a little bit like uh, a cast member from Les Mis or something. You know, you're just like uh, ready to storm the barricade, storm the Bastille, uh, because you're so sick of it. And they made a choice. The choice was that it was better to just call the cops than to offer more money. You know, Delta looks pretty good here. Although I know Delta had some big problems recently and. Uh, I thought their reservation system was down or something. I forget what it was specifically, but there was an issue. Oh, and United had the whole leggings gate problem a couple of weeks ago, too. Nice work, United. Um, But Delta allows for people, this is a a much better system, you'd think. Delta allows for people to say, well, they they will put out a notice, you know, how much much would it take for you to take the next flight? And you can put in your number. If your number is 200, if it's 500, whatever it may be. There's always a number to get someone to give up their seat on one of these planes. That's always going to be possible, right? There's there's no way that you're not going to be able to induce somebody for enough vouchers or enough cash or whatever to give up their seat. But you see, United didn't want to have to go to the mat and pay the max. So they'd rather call the cops and throw us out. And that was, remember, this is like a government's policy versus a government's mistake outside of the policy. Their protocol here was... Better to call the cops on a paying customer than have to pay the customer more money than we want to. That's, as I see it, what this really came down to, which looks terrible. But the other side of this is that because of the allowance of a monopoly to exist here, uh, the allowing of a monopoly to exist were quasi-monopolies among the four airlines or five, whatever it is. I think it's four now. Um, there's not going to be any boycott. I don't even think there's going to be that much of the way consequences for United. And I think they'll be back to uh, putting us in the most uncomfortable, tight seats imaginable in, and, and with, with rude service and messing up our travel plans in short order. I wish I could tell you there was a happy 
there was a happy ending uh, for all of us here. But the truth is, my friends, when it comes to the airlines, there is there is no Santa Claus. Uh, it's just it's just not going to happen. Uh, but on a happy note, download the podcast. Go to uh, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. You can subscribe there or you can go on the iHeartRadio app. Until tomorrow night, I'll see you all here. Shields high.